morning, everybody. This is Carol Roth. If you don't know her, she is a recovering investment maker, entrepreneur, TV pundit, and host, speaker, economic, business, and financial commentator, and a content developer and New York Times bestselling author. Her books include The Entrepreneur Equation, The War on Small Business, and Now You Will Own Nothing. That's coming out on July 18th, 2023. Carol's worked in a lot in a variety of capacities across industries, including uh, currently as an outsourced CCO, as director on public and private company boards, and as a strategic advisor and C-level consigliere. Uh, Carol connects the dots on financial business and economic issues for novice and pro audiences alike. She is also the creator of the Future File Legacy Planning System and Software. You can find that at www.futurefile.com. And Carol is an advocate for small business, small government, and big hair. <laughs> uh, in her new book, You Will Own Nothing, Carol reveals how world governments, globalist organizations, big tech, Wall Street, and other powerful elites are proactively trying to control every finite resource and determining who has access to such resources. This book is an essential guide to stopping the elite's agenda and taking control to pre preserve your and your family's freedom and wealth. And with that long introduction, <laughs> we'll, we'll get right to the question. So um, we'll start. A new financial world order kind of sounds like conspiracy theory to some people. So is it? And why do you say we are in World War F? And how does this put the American dream at risk? So very good questions. And certainly five or 10 years ago, there were a lot of things that I would have considered to be conspiracy theories that, um, you know, we've kind of all lived through. And I, yeah, I guess that's not a conspiracy theory anymore. But one of the things that I wanted to do in this book is provide very solid research and very irrefutable evidence um, that, you know, these things that are being talked about um, aren't just these, you know, tinfoil hat things. So the, the first thing I can point to um, in terms of the new world order, the new financial world order, is that this is something that is being widely talked about, um, even by our current president. You can go to the White House's website. You can look up the comments that he made to the Business Roundtable, which is a group of the leading CEOs of the biggest companies in the United States. And he talks about um, how there's going to be a new global economic shift. And this is not a, a direct quote, but just generally speaking. And it ha happens every three or four generations and that there is going to be a new world order out there. And then he goes on to say, we've got to lead it. And I'm not sure who the we is, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it's, it's not me that's included in that and perhaps not you. And, and I think, you know, as he's talking to these big, powerful people, that's what he's talking about. But, you know, the, the idea of a new world order sounds weird to us because we have lived through a period of incredible prosperity where the United States has been at the center of the global economy for about 80 years now. So we, we can't really imagine anything different because we've never seen anything different. But if you go back throughout history, 
there have been other, you know, even in modern history, other global financial world orders. Uh, before us, it was the British. And I would imagine that during that period of time, they also thought that they were invincible. And the idea that somebody else would be in that pole position probably seemed really crazy to them. And before the British, it was the Dutch. So, you know, it's wrapped in this name that sounds super conspiratorial, but it's being, as I said, talked about um, openly, you know, by the leader of the United States, by a lot of other connected people, and is also, you know, very traceable to other events in history. So hopefully that takes some of the um, conspiracy element out of it. Now, with that backdrop and the fact that all of these global folks um, know what is going on, you know, they have a couple of choices. You know, if you're a, a smart and connected person, you could sit back and go, you know, the financial stakes are going to shift here. I I'm going to see how this all plays out and just hope and pray that I do okay. Or they could say the financial stakes are going to shift. So what can I, as a person of power and connections and wealth today, do to make sure that me and my cronies retain that power and retain that wealth and you know have as much as we can and come out on top when the stakes shift? And I think, again, that doesn't seem very conspiratorial, right? That's what you would do if you're in that position as well. Um, so you know, I call this... World War F, a financial world war where basically you're effed because all of the people around you, whether it's the U.S. government and the Fed, um, you know, acting desperately as we come to this uh, late stage cycle of the United States's position at the global of the center of, of the of the financial universe, whether it's NGOs and, and big businesses and, and all of these organizations, or whether it's big tech, which kind of stands on its own, seeing these shifts, you know, they're all coming at you um, from a, a financial standpoint. And it's interesting because if you think about the concept of war historically, it was a country that would go invade another country and take that country and those people's resources. And in many ways with World War F, the call um, in many cases is coming from inside the house. It's the opposite. It's your own government and the people around them who are coming to try to, to take your resources. So uh, Tracy, does that kind of help take some of the conspiracy element out for you and, and sort of frame the discussion in a, in a less tinfoily way, so to speak? Yes, and that's why I kind of wanted to start there, just for, you know, all the people that tend to lean towards that's just conspiracy theory. So, you know, I think everything you said makes absolute sense, and um, we'll put the tinfoil hats down for, for a minute. Um, so I kind of wanted, next I kind of want to dig, I'm going to do this in sections, but I kind of want to dig into CBDC. Because usually when I post something about CBDC, I get a lot of comments and questions saying, everything's already digital anyway. What does it matter? Yeah. So can you talk a bit about CBDC? How is this different from the digital transactions that are occurring today? And what are the inherent dangers? 
Yeah, I think this is a, a very important question. So for people who aren't as familiar with CBDCs, they are central bank digital currencies. And that is basically a digitalized version of whatever fiat currency that central bank and corresponding governments are producing and, and in charge of. So in the case of the United States, um, theoretically, that would be a digital dollar, digital U.S. dollar. Um, the difference between the dollars that we have today and whether we're transacting with them via credit card or via some cash in hand is that certainly we know the Fed and the government has some level of control over our money, certainly over the money supply. Um, we've seen some collusion happen, whether it's um, you know internally where payment processors have turned off payments uh, capabilities for people who they feel like are engaged in wrong think or on an international stage you had the US government go to alphabet and Apple and say hey we're doing these sanctions against Russia so for Apple pay and Google pay you're going to have to turn it off so th there's no doubt some level of control. What the CBDC does is it takes it to the next level because it fully centralizes the currency, particularly on a, a retail-facing level, which is kind of the ultimate scenario we're taking here within the purview um, of the, the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government. So I'm going I'm to take us out of the digital realm, and then I'm going to get us back there. But imagine a dollar that you have today. Certainly, the government knows in general that you have some money. It may know when you pull it out. It may follow, you know, your credit card statement. It, it, it may it may have, you know, some general idea of, of what's going on. But take it to the next level. Let's imagine every dollar that you had had a microchip in it, and you know, you go to the to you know, I'll go to the I'll go to a restaurant. I'll want to have a burger because I love burgers, and I go to pay. And they click this microchip and the government goes, beep, beep, beep. No, no, we can't do this. Carol's had far too many burgers as well as some milkshakes this month. And we don't like that because burgers are bad for the economy. And so we are now not going to allow Carol to be able to purchase this burger. We're going to shut off that access. Or maybe we don't like what Carol said on social media about Jerome Powell or about Joe Biden or whatever it is. And so we're going to shut off that access. So it gives them full control, total transparency over everything that you do. And certainly if you control the money, you can control the people. Now, again, going into the realm of what can they do, what would they do, you know, you'll say, well, that's not constitutional or that's not something that, you know, realistically they can do. And again, five, five or 10 years ago, I would say, absolutely, that, that, that's, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. I can't imagine them doing that. But having lived through the COVID area and seeing them tell people that they were essential or non-essential and having them shut down businesses by mandate at the local level and saying that, you know, you can't have a job if you're not vaccinated. And you know, there were several mandates that came out, um, which, you know, ultimately were struck down as not constitutional, but it, it took some time. I don't, I no longer think that it's a, a 
a very long um, leap to make to say that this is a possibility. And certainly, as we know, every time there's a, a government grab for power, it never goes in the opposite direction. They just end up taking more and more over time. So perhaps it doesn't start out like that, but ultimately it gets to that place. And with the full control over the money, you know, in addition to just completely killing your freedoms, um, it creates a, a huge too big to fail scenario because when you have, you know, a lot of different institutions um, you certainly could have a, a, a target against you know, a few in the system, and that creates some issues. But if everything is centralized, um, there is, there's no redundancy there. You know, that, that's where it lies. You could bring down an entire economy um, by targeting the system. And then just in terms of the additional ability to kill purchasing power, Go back to what happened with these stimulus checks, you know, both under the Trump and the Biden administration. People were like, yes, give me my thousand or twelve thousand stimulus dollars. I want my Donnie dollars. I want my Biden bucks, you know, please. And many of us raised our hands and said, no, you don't want those. That's going to cause rampant inflation and it's going to kill your long term purchasing power. And people wanted that anyway. And then lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. And so that thousand or twelve thousand dollars, you know, ends up costing you six or seven thousand dollars a year for the rest of your life and reduced purchasing power. I would imagine the same thing could happen with CBDC, especially in getting people interested in it. I mean, imagine that they they say to entice people to take part in this. You know, Tracy, if you give me your 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 current dollar Federal Reserve note form factor, I'll give you four digital dollars. And for the average person who doesn't have strong financial literacy, they're going to go, "That's amazing! Yes, I want the four instead of the one. Look at me, I'm I'm rich now." <laughs> Not realizing the impact that that has. Um, also, things like controlling inflation. You know, they could, instead of enacting the policy tools that they have today, they have access to your money. They could say, we don't want people to spend. We're just shutting down the ability to spend. I, you know, I could go on and on, but that gives you kind of the sense of, you know, the loss of freedom and the loss of agency that would happen if you did have you know, a full, especially retail-facing central bank digital currency. It's it's the the absolute worst, scariest thing um, that I can possibly think of. And Tracy, I know that this is something that you're very passionate about. Is there anything that that you would add that I've forgotten there? No, absolutely. I mean, I think you covered that great. And the next thing I was going to do, because um, I know you've touched on this before, and I completely, uh, I've talked about this before as well, but you know, how do you think the banking crisis or a continued banking crisis creates the perfect cover for CBDCs? Well, in its very simplest form, if you don't have banks, you don't have bank runs. And, um, you know, the, the fear in about what has been happening and the, the fear that you know, people could lose dollars that are uninsured or that the banks are no longer safe um, is always, you know, fear is always the cover for government to take more power. And so I think in the case of CBDCs, it's, you know, one of, of several routes, 
you know, we can control inflation, we can make sure there's no bank runs, we can institute a universal basic income, um, you know, all different kinds of, of fear and or incentives that, the, you know, the backdrop of what we've gone through. And again, for people who somehow still believe in and trust both the Federal Reserve and the government, and I know it's shocking, but I've heard like major financial commentators and economic pros over the past few days tell me about their faith in the Fed, which is just staggering. Um, but there are people who would say, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I'm worried about it, um, even though, hey, you were the one who caused this, but we don't know that. We don't understand that. So, yes, let's just give you more power because I'm scared of this thing and I don't understand it. And that's, you know, how I think these things sort of roll out. Yeah, and I was... <clears throat> I was thinking on the other side of that argument, I don't know how you feel about this, but, you know, if, you know, you, it's hard to imagine banks would like a CBDC, right? Because they're not in control of the money anymore. And so if we get rid of all these regional banks and only have, say, five big banks, something right. like Canada, right? It makes that scenario a lot easier to happen when you only have, you know, five banks that you have to deal with in, you know, a CBDC scenario rather than 4,500 banks. Absolutely. And if you think about the Federal Reserve System and, you know, the, the New York Fed and, you know, the, the sort of most powerful part of the, the system, you know, who, who are the banks who theoretically really control the Fed? I mean, it really is sort of one and the same. We know that we have a handful of banks, as you said, that really are the power center. So if you continue with what I call the great consolidation, which we've seen, you know, in every industry where these small, independent, you know, free choice, um, you know, decentralized options are going away and, and power is getting more consolidated within um, big companies, you know, you see it in, in tech, you see it in retail, yeah, certainly think that we're seeing it in the banking system. We saw it after the Great Recession financial crisis. Dodd-Frank helped to enable some of that. Um, but yeah, if you if you get rid of those, it's much easier for the Fed, who, you know, as I said, very much are these people to work together and figure out how that benefits them and gives them more power and control, which at the end of the day is what this is all about. And that leads me to our next <laughs> set of questions for you, which is social credit. Yeah. It's perfectly in. So obviously we hear a lot about social credit system in China. So uh, how, you know, when I, it's hard to believe and what not to believe out of China. I understand that. Uh, but how advanced is the system there? Do you see that coming to the West? And how does that factor into this new financial world order? Yeah, social credit is very interesting because I would argue that we do have a social credit system here in the United States that's been playing out over the last several years. Um, you know, cancel culture is sort of an early form factor of social credit. It doesn't get formalized into a formal system like is emerging in China, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, or it hasn't in the U.S. quite yet. But you know, as you've seen here on Twitter with the release of the Twitter files, there has been a lot of um, collusion between 
technology and you know government and other big players to say we don't like what these people are saying and doing and so we are going to try to mar their social credit and you know in the US um, you know also some of the covid mandates did that and it's very much in my opinion tied to wealth they're not just trying to you know attack your freedom of speech but they're doing so by coming after your wealth. Um, it, it, some of that is direct. You know, if the, you hurt people's social standing, if you make them cancelable, you know, they have fewer opportunities. If you make them, uh, if you, you come after their jobs, you know, like we saw during COVID, if you didn't take the vaccine or, you know, whatnot, you know, obviously that comes after your ability to create income. And we also saw them come after actual wealth and assets. You know, they shut down businesses, particularly small businesses that weren't connected. If you go up to our neighbors to the north um, and you look at what happened with the uh, Freedom Convoy, the truckers that were protesting, they actually froze those assets. So to me, that all ties into social credit. And, and that is you know, in a, a non-formalized way. What's happened in China, you know, they probably have the most advanced social credit system, but it's not fully advanced and it's not exactly how it's portrayed um, in some ways, but in other ways that it is. So it's kind of done on a regional basis and, and they do use different kinds of grading. Some places use letter grades, some do number grades, and they give you incentives for the behaviors they want to incentivize and they give penalties for the, the behaviors that they don't. And we're not just talking about like legal behaviors, but you know, things that are, are very um, behavioral oriented, things like donating blood or going to visit your parents or saying nice things about the government or on the opposite side, you know, getting punished um, for things like, you know, cheating and video games or taking up too much room in an airplane. And, you know, we all hate when people take up too much room in an airplane, but I don't know that if you want the government to penalize you for that, right? So it, it's it's this the system that's created and it's, it uses technology and it uses, you know, the buy-in of the people, which obviously in China, they don't have that, you know, kind of buy-in. But here, um, you get a lot of people and a lot of cheerleaders who, are, who, who cheer on some of these things. And, you know, what happens in China is, you know, the, the penalties are severe. I mean, your kids may not be able to get into a school. There may be um, penalties assessed against your business. There's one story that I share in the book about a man named Lao Duan, who, um, you know, he actually ended up in a financial situation because the government changed its own policy and kind of ended up screwing him, him over and he ended up in debt. And he saw his face on a billboard, like an electronic billboard with his face and like some identifier number. And it says, this is not a, a trustworthy person. I mean, literally an image out of an Orwell novel. And you know, that's the, the level that they're sort of piloting there in China. And, you know, again, you could say, well, that's China, that, that's not the U.S., you know, we're, we're free here. But again, looking at what's happened over the last three years and the attacks that we've seen, um, you know, I would say that the the chasm, that the gap there 
isn't as far as you might think. And to really implement that social credit, you know, all they need is technology and acceptance. They've gotten the technology. We've certainly seen people um, be cheerleaders for government actions. So uh, I think it's something to be very concerned about. And again, it, it ties in because it, it impacts your ability at the end of the day to generate wealth or your actual wealth, which ties into this overall you will own nothing theme. That's frightening. What? <laughs> All right. So that, well, now we're going to move to the latest hot, the, the hottest topic on the Twitter sphere today. And that's, of course, USD, right? <laughs> so, and, you know, is de-dollarization, et cetera, et cetera. So really, first let's talk, I know that in your book you noted that 97% of the dollar's purchasing power has been lost since 1913. So what does that mean exactly? I mean, what is currency dis dis debasement and what's happened in the U.S.? So the best way I can explain currency debasement is going back to Rome, the Roman Empire. Um, because I think in many ways, the Roman Empire is really a good analogy for the U.S. in terms of being this, this superpower and, you know, having all, all these indulgences and then kind of eating itself alive from the inside instead of having, you know, having sort of these outsized forces being its downfall. So Rome recognized that having stable money was really critical to a stable society. And they held their money stable for like 300 years. And they had um, you know, a number of different ways that they, they put out their money, but their, their main coin was a silver coin called the denarius that was 95% silver. They held that level of stability. And then the great old emperor Nero comes around and uh, Nero apparently didn't really believe in stable money and uh, was a bit more indulgent. Um, and so what he did was he would call all the currency that was out in circulation in and he would melt it down and he would either siphon off a percentage of that silver and keep it you know, for himself and or replace some of it with another metal. And so the, the silver content of the denarius started to shrink and shrink, and he would use the extra you know, for his own purposes and to fight wars and doing all those kinds of things. So over time, you know, he was sort of the big enabler here, and then the emperors that followed him kind of followed suit. So you had this coin that had 95% silver, and over a period of years, it went down to having 0.5% silver content. And that's basically what's happening with our money is that, you know, the, the, the dollar itself isn't anything. It's just a, it's just sort of a, a medium of exchange, a unit of accounts, theoretically a store of value, but we can talk about that. Uh, but, it, you know, it represents something. It represents the, the productivity of the American people. And if you don't have that increase in productivity and you produce more dollars, then, you know, what each dollar stands for is, you know, on a, a proportional basis worth less. And so that's what has happened certainly over long periods of time. We have seen a massive 
acceleration of that um, over the last 15 years with the Fed, you know, out of nowhere adding um, or getting their balance sheet up to about $9 trillion. And so most people kind of don't understand. They, 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 they understand that things get more expensive over time, but they don't really understand how it happens. And, you know, there's this, this really great skit, uh, which I've shared before. You can find it in my Twitter stream. Um, or you can look it up online from Saturday Night Live in the 70s talking about inflation at that point in time and Dan Aykroyd's pretending to be Jimmy Carter and just talking about like, hey, you know, wouldn't you like to drive a car that's worth millions of dollars and wear like a $20,000 suit? You too can be a millionaire making the joke that, you know, it's not about the the headline number for the dollar, but about what it it is purchasing. And so, you know, we have seen um, the government and the Fed just do a, a horrible job as being the steward of capital. And as the, the center of the financial universe, you know, it, it was their job to, to monitor the stability, um, you know, of the U.S. dollar and, you know, sometimes as the reserve currency, there's a, a fight between doing what's right for the, the domestic economy and, and holding it stable for the good of the world. And amazingly, they've managed to do neither. <laughs> so we're in a really weird situation. But I know, Trace, because I know, I know you and I probably have a little bit of a different perspective on this. You know, one of the challenges out there is I, I always call us the, the skinniest kid at fat camp is that, you know, we, the dollar is not strong as, uh, as our friend Jimmy Urio likes to say against a, a, a basket of groceries or a loaf of bread, but it still has strength, you know, in the world because there aren't a lot of other great alternatives from currencies. And so that's this really weird position I think that we're in today. And I think it makes the situation harder to get your your head wrapped around, but also a lot more frightening because going back to the the new financial world order discussion we were having, you know, when when the Dutch were having their issues, you had London springing up as a financial center and this you know bastion of opportunity that kind of stepped into place. And when the British were going down, the same thing was happening here in, in the U.S. But there is no like bastion of freedom and opportunity that's like waiting to step into the pole position here. The other options are places of tyranny and control and not free ideas and free markets and free trade and opportunity for all. And I think that's what makes this not only so frightening, but should get everybody here really jazzed up to fight back and to try to, to, prolong this and and turn the tide and, and preserve the American dream because like there's no good alternative out there. We don't have that, you know, next bastion of freedom on the sidelines waiting to be the next one to step in here. The, the, the people who want to step in to the pole position are frightening. They're more frightening than what's going on here. Um, and so I think that creates, um, you know, a very unique and frightening scenario, but hopefully, you know, a, a good call to action for everybody. 
And with that, that's kind of my next question. If the U.S. were to lose reserve currency status, who or what takes over? I mean, what are the options? CBDC? <laughs> I mean, it seems like all the alternatives are pretty terrible here, and it doesn't seem like anybody is in the poll position right now. Yes. Fiat-wise, to be able to take that over. Yeah, and I think this is where, you know, your and my ideas on the subject overlap. And I, th- I think, you know, I, I, I don't have the perfect answer. This is all just speculation. But certainly some of the discussions have been um, around, you know, going back to some sort of a basket of, um, you know, whether it's currencies or resources, maybe precious metals that end up backing things. You know, maybe it's a scenario where there isn't just one, you know, main currency and there's different, you know, blocks and alliances that are doing trading. And so it's kind of like, you know, we're, we're split up into different groups here. And so I think that's the, the big question. I know there are people who think that China's, you know, in that position. I find it really hard to believe that people want to hold, um, you know, yuan and that, you know, that a communist um, currency that can be shifted, you know, if you're worried about what the U.S. is doing, you have to have 10 times the worry about what's happening, what would potentially happen with China. So while there are some places, you know, that certainly, you know, might do that on a, a full global basis, I find that somewhat hard to believe Though certainly at, at this point I've learned anything's a possibility, and so I do think that something that's more, um, you know, maybe metals or resources based in a basket, um, or having kind of you know a number of different currencies. You know, it's not that the U.S. dollar is going to completely go away; it's just not going to be the you know the sole global reserve currency. So it could be just one of many. But I think that the implications, you know, for that is. You know, one, obviously, the United States government has been the biggest um, benefiter, benefiter a word, benefitee. I like <laughs> of, it. Let's use it. <laughs> let's see, we'll, we'll, make, we'll make it a word now. But, you know, of, um, you know, having that reserve currency and being able to finance their debt at very, very low costs, you know, because of, you know, all the people who have to go out um, and purchase, uh, purchase dollars and, and treasuries and whatnot. Um, but, uh, I, I think that in terms of just our, our own standing, our, our standard of living and the ability to access things that we need and maybe even, um, you know, going to the point of impacting our, um, military power, I think it really shifts the quality and of life and standard of life that we're used to in a way that, again, we can't really get our heads wrapped around because we've never known anything differently. Absolutely. It kind of sounds like a basket would be similar to, say, an SDR from from the IMF. Yeah, I mean, it it could be. It could be. Um, You know, I, I think there are certainly a lot of different ways that this can go down. And 
you know, the, the question in my mind becomes what's the catalyst for this? And, and certainly this is, you know, another kind of scary discussion because not every war brings around a new financial world order, but at least in modern times, every new financial world order has been preceded by a war. And that has given the cover to have the, you know, groups of people come together and iron out a new arrangement um, and see what that looks like. And so, you know, I, I think depending on if something like that goes down as a catalyst, that could shift how things play out. Um, but certainly if there's a different scenario, if it, you know, it's a, it, you know, it's something that's preceded by a CBDC or something else, it could look very different. So there, there are a lot of smart people out there with different ideas and you know i can you can see the trajectory but there are too many things that have to sort of happen in my opinion to get that set that i think can go in a lot of different directions and you know if you look at you know the shift between the the british and the us's sort of reigns in that in that global financial pole position it took a long time to start sort out. There was like 15 years of chaos in between. And so that's, you know, something else I think people need to be prepared for you. It's easy to look back and see things, you know, it's very linear and this happens and then this happens. But the reality is that it's very messy and very ugly. And certainly we're seeing, you know, some uh, movement in that direction in terms of, you know, countries like China, um, you know, dumping their reserve holdings, uh, lots of deals that are made, a lot of the MENA countries, you know, getting away from the dollar. Um, so, you know, I, I think we're starting to see things, but the reality is that the, there, there's there got to be a big catalyst because it's not like, uh, you know, the U.S. wants to give up that position easily. And we still do have a very large military and um, a lot of influence. So I think the way the specific way that plays out is still unclear, but the trajectory, well, we, we don't know the specifics and we don't know the duration. I think the trajectory is, is very clear. And that's, you know, that that's what we can bank on and plan for today. No, I absolutely agree. And I have, we, this could be a whole discussion in itself, <laughs> the USD. So and I do have other questions on that, but I do have much more I want to cover as well. So um, I'm going to move, but, you know, I think you brought up a lot of interesting scenarios that are a possibility that I think many have, may not be thinking about. So, I th you know, I think that's very interesting. And Tracy, um, I just, can I, if I can just stop for a second and just say, you know, I'm hoping that as people are listening to this and just remembering where you started this discussion about hey, this sounds really conspiratorial, um, you know, you'll own nothing, a new financial world order, whatever. I feel like the things that we're discussing, you know, are, are really clear and really well documented and stuff that people can hopefully point to and helped us to shift this discussion from the, the tinfoil hat people to the, the reality of what's playing out in front of us right now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I, with that, I'm going to move to big tech because this is another um, kind of thing I've been worried about. And you go over this in your book. So 
first let's go over like why do you call big tech the de facto government so it, so big tech has really become um you know they've stepped into the role and they're running up against a lot of the same things that you would normally run up against with the government they have in many cases you know, as much power and as many users and frankly, as much scale as some of the countries around the world. I mean, if you look at the, and I know it's not apples to apples, but just, you know, to to give some scope, right? If you look at the, the, the market cap of some of these big tech companies, and then you look at the GDP of, you know, most of the countries around the world, um, they're larger than, you know, a lot of these countries. If you think about the user base of many of these companies, they have more users than a lot of these countries have citizens. And so we're running into, um, you know, these companies that have lots of scale, lots of cash, lots of resources that have kind of come into every facet of our life in a way where you don't have a lot of choice. Um, and, you know, in, in some cases you don't have, they're, they're making similar decisions that you would see, uh, you know, in your broader life, but you don't have the same kinds of protections that you would from having any you know, constitution of, or bill of rights. There is no digital bill of rights. And it, it's really kind of a, a crazy scenario. I, I saw an article that kind of jives with, um, you know, what I've been talking about today in Insider, um, you're talking about the fact that basically te- tech companies, it's called the death of ownership, um, which sounds a lot like you will own nothing, and how these companies are, are sort of trying to um, take away your ability to, to own stuff <laughs> once you buy it. And that foots, you know, exactly with the, the point that I'm making is that one, um, your life is really in many ways seen as a subscription or a service. And there are gatekeepers to that. You know, think about your phone, right? So you, you have this brick that is made up of microchips and glass and, you know, some other components, plastic or whatnot. And you own that, but it's fairly useless if you don't have all of the licenses and permissions that go along with that, right? We, you can't, if you don't have access to the operating system, and by the way, two companies control the operating system for you know, 99 plus percent of the planet, so there's not a lot of choice there. So without access to that operating system, your, your phone is useless. Um, if somebody cuts off your ability to use a payment processor or to use your email or to use anything else that you might access to your phone, then, you know, you don't have that opportunity to participate in society. And it's, you know, it's very different. Like with the, think about just our, our landline telephones, you know, there was a, an act put in place saying that, you know, that was infrastructure and that because there weren't a lot of choices, um, the carriers couldn't deny service to to anyone. So it's not like, you know, you and I could be having our discussion on the phone, Tracy, and we say something and the phone company goes, oh, well, I don't like what you're saying, so I'm just going to not let you use the phone anymore. 
but we're seeing that happen across you know different levels of technology and certainly some companies have been better than others but that's dependent upon who's in charge and as we have seen that can change and, and shift very quickly so things like your ability to speak freely or to have a court to adjudicate you know any issues or even to give you a path to redemption I mean, you say something or do something that's deemed wrong by whomever and, you know, you lose access to something and then you may not be able to access that for the rest of your life. And as tech is becoming more and more important and entrenched in our lives, um, you know, I think that that the issue of them kind of being this de facto government, as well as the lack of ownership that you have in the process um, is something that's very concerning. Along with their very close ties to the government and various three-letter agencies. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, in many ways, they're more powerful <laughs> than the governments or those agencies. So um, right now they're playing nice, but they, in a way, could kind of shift and change and, and do whatever they want. And there there is no check and balance and there is no true... You know, free market competition. I think people sometimes when they think about capitalism, they equate that with private ownership. And oh, it's a private company and they can do whatever they want. But you know, capitalism only works with choice and competition. And when you have two companies that you know owe 99% of all operating systems and only a handful that allow for payment and only a handful of you know public town squares uh, for social media. That's not capitalism. That, that's like capture by a, a handful of companies. Um, so I think that you know the way that we approach this needs to be different. And frankly, we're you know we're just getting trained for non ownership. Um, you know whether it's you know the the subscriptions that we have, or as we move forward into the digital sphere, you know places like the metaverse where now you're buying digital products or even in video games, right? Digital products that you know, only work within that sphere and that you don't really have an asset that is going to hold or appreciate in value. Um, you know, that's really nice and maybe fun and entertaining, but that's certainly not going to not only not pay your rent or your mortgage, but it, it's not going to help you gain wealth in the physical world. So it, it's something that I think we need to, to really shine a light on. And, um, you know, it's, it's weird because technology is obviously great in many ways. And over time, it really has enabled the um, horizontal spread of wealth between people and, and giving more opportunities to more people. And I just feel like this latest iteration of tech has sort of done the opposite. It, it's created a scenario where they've been able to extract rents, um, you know, within a, just a handful of companies that are really powerful, and sort of the average person um, isn't able to participate in that. And for this to be tenable going forward, there really needs to be broader participation in that wealth creation. And that's kind of my next question was, how does tech tie in together with social credit, digital ID, CBDCs, and you will owe nothing, which I think you pretty much just answered. 
But if you want to, if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I just, I'm glad that you underscored it because you can see that, you know, that that's the, the thing about, you know, the research I've done with You Will Own Nothing is that there are all these disparate things that you learn about and you can see that it's coming at you from every direction, but it's also very much tied together. You know, as we said, with social credit, um, it doesn't work at scale and certainly not at the government level without technology. And you do have these organizations that every time there's an opportunity to profit on something, they're raising their hands like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll, help, we'll help create digital IDs, id2020.org, go look them up. Lots of big tech names involved there and other organizations. And it's always being sold, oh, it's, it's for you, it's, it's for the people, it's gonna be so good for you. And that, as we know, quickly morphs because something that may be a vac paper vaccine card a couple of years ago becomes eventually a digital vaccination card. And once they have that infrastructure, it's like, well, why don't we fill that up with, with other information? And, you know, one of the things that you might want to look into um, is something called ACD, Alternative Credit Decisioning, which is uh, an idea that um, you learned about from the World Economic Forum. Go figure. Now they keep popping up in all of this stuff. Um, but it's, it's in conjunction with, you know, lots of other big consulting and accounting organizations and the like. And they're talking about making credit decisions, not just based on traditional financial metrics that we would think of, but also psychometric data and your behavior and what you do on social media. And there's a big push to move personal data and personal behaviors into a lot of different areas. Um, so, you know, that's one. And, and there was also a paper from the IMF that I stumbled across that, that's not in the book, um, that also talks about data being part of, you know, a, a CBDC or some sort of a global currency. So again, the ideas are already out there of how do we take, you know, your information, your life and really commoditize that. And it's all in an effort to not give you more opportunities, but really take away your freedoms and to strip your wealth creation opportunities. And the only way we can fight back against this stuff is if we understand it and we empower ourselves with the knowledge and we share the knowledge with other people and then create that plan to fight back. And that, lead, and that was my next question. What do you think we need? What do you think is needed to push back against big tech? And can we? I mean, is it possible for the little guy to do that? Yes, yeah, so it's. I'm glad that I was able to tee you up so seamlessly for that. That was fantastic. Um, so the, this, I want to acknowledge that this whole discussion is very overwhelming, right? Because there, there are a lot of things going on, and they're coming at you from all these different entities, from the Fed and the government and NGOs and big business and big tech. Um, and, and so it's overwhelming to go, like, how, how do I, <laughs> sitting in, in my house just, you know, trying to, to live my life, how am I going to stop a, a new financial world order? How, how, do I, how do I stop all of these things? And so I think the perspective has to shift a little bit. Um, is that one, 
none of us individually are going to be able to change what happens, you know, over history and cycles. I do think we could substantially delay that and that will be to all of our benefit. So, you know, that, that's sort of a good piece of news, but I think it's about, you know, as these things shift, how do I personally, and then along with other individuals in my community, how do I position myself and how do we, you know, work together to make sure that as these things change, you know, we're solid and we don't get lost in the process. And so I've devoted actually a, a whole chapter. I'll give you a little Easter egg since I, I like you so much, Tracy. Uh, this is actually chapter 11 in my book called Own Everything. And I did that because chapter 11 is usually when you go bankrupt and you lose everything you own. So I just wanted to kind of flip all of this discussion of everything on its head and you know make people really incentivized to own things. So everything comes down to behavioral shifts as well as you know financial shifts that are based on behaviors and obviously it depends on what the the sort of area is that we're focusing on on how we're going to shift our behaviors um, you know, something like a CBDC that we spent some time on, I'll, I'll use that as an example. I mean, the, fir the first thing is that this has to go through Congress in order for it to be enacted. So this is an area, even if you're not somebody who normally gets involved, that when they try to shove this in different places, that you have to be an active voice to try to, to help and push back. It, and that may or may not work, but that's one action we can take. But then on the personal side, and you say, okay, so if the CBDC does come into to, to effect, how do I then you know, control both the stores of wealth that I have and the medium ex of exchange I, ha of I have? Because I see that this is going to, to change materially. And that's where, you know, you obviously make the decisions that are right for you. And this is not financial advice, but looking to hard assets. You know, we talked about precious metals, which, again, if you're going to use that as a medium of exchange, means that you have to have them in some smaller denominations as well as larger denominations, but also things like, you know, owning productive land and, and other, um, you know, tangible assets that are outside of this scheme. Um, I'm not personally a big crypto person, but, you know, that may be the right choice for some people and is certainly um, one of the reasons why things like Bitcoin are so popular. But it, it, it's thinking about how, you know, you can transact and store your wealth outside of the system, at least for some period of time as we see where this all goes. Because one interesting thing about the CBDC in China is that it's it's actually not catching on <laughs> at all. And I have some great stats in the book. So they're probably gonna have to force that. And so that's sort of probably the trajectory that happens here in the US where they, they use bribery first to get people into it. And if that doesn't work, then it's, it's a, it's a force. So you do have some time to sort out, but just like everything else, you don't want to wait till that last minute. You want to plan for that situation now. And, you know, I think the diversification and having a broad portfolio that includes a variety of hard assets is one thing that may make sense for you. Excellent.
Now, moving on to my very favorite subject, and if I didn't talk to you about this, I would die, is ESG. Scam. Sorry. <laughs> ESG. So, <laughs> I just want to talk to you about this, because you know that is a very passionate subject of mine. Yes. And so, I've <laughs> uh, been very vocal on that. But so, first, let's talk about, you know, why do you call ESG business social credit and how is ESG creating barriers to wealth for Americans? Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of the easiest way. So ESG, um, you know, it doesn't have a clear definition by purpose on purpose because it shifts and changes to whatever the whims of the people who are pushing it wanted to be or whatever is convenient for it. And we've seen that, um, you know, as this energy insanity, which I know, Tracy, you could probably talk about for 10 hours nonstop, uh, has happened over the past few years that they keep shifting. Oh, well, today this is ESG. Well, no, this actually should be what ESG is. And, and they keep moving it around. But it really is, you know, going back to what we talk about, the social credit, that, that control, it's business social credit. It's these, these people who are not shareholders, who are not involved um, in the ownership of the business, trying to bully and control what businesses do by controlling capital and by, you know, trying to put scores and, um, you know, this kind of like your right think or wrong think on these businesses to get the outcomes that they want that benefit them, uh, that the elite that are pushing it. And it's, it's a horrible situation because it really does, you know, kind of shift, um, wealth creation opportunities, obviously in the area that you're passionate about, Tracy, you know, how it has moved capital away from traditional sources of energy, which not only makes the direct energy more expensive and less abundant and creates you know, national and economic security issues, but the 6,000 derivative products, um, as well as all the services that are dependent upon it. So from a direct standpoint, you know, we, we see that you know, kind of manipulation of businesses who are now no longer focused on what's right for their customers and their shareholders, but are being bullied by these outside influences to, to change that around. And now we're actually getting, um, you know, uh, mandates that have come down from the Biden administration where they're letting th those who are in charge of your retirement funds skip their fiduciary duty to say, you know, no longer are we looking at what's in your best financial interest and being sworn to that, um, but we are allowed now to prioritize ESG factors in front of that. And so, again, it's, it's attacking your wealth from all different ways. And so not only is it, you know, kind of this bullying based on, on whims, but then there's this whole other piece um, and again, we could spend a ton of time on this, but this is just giving you guys a taste of, you know, what's called greenwashing, which is the idea that they're slapping ESG labels on things that actually have nothing to do with whatever the current version of ESG is claiming to be at that point in time as just a way to extract fees and, and wealth and transfer that, you know, from you to the, the people who are in charge, you know, more, more Main Street to Wall Street transfers of wealth. 
And so I know there's been, you know, some level of crackdown on that. Um, but, you know, people who have been involved, including, you know, the former chief investment officer of sustainable investing at BlackRock, who left, um, not because he doesn't believe in environmental causes, he actually does, but because he just doesn't believe that the ESG push is actually doing anything for the environment. So, again, kind of like some of these other ideas, they're coming at you from all directions and that, uh, you know, that, that makes it more challenging, but it has become so entrenched in every facet of business um, that it really is, you know, not fair in terms of, you know, what the free market wants and then in terms of your wealth creation opportunities. And we are seeing some, you know, initial pushback against it, but Lord, it's going to take a long time. And, and obviously, yeah, I, I would love for you to weigh in here, Tracy, because I know you've got you've got you've got thoughts for days on this. You know, I, I mean, you know, I, I, a lot of these things, if you look at and I just wanted to add, if you look at a lot of these ESG uh, funds or these, you know, ETFs or whatever, nothing in those baskets, 90% of what's in those baskets are not ESG. MasterCard's in there, you know, Visa's in there. <laughs> you have oil companies in some of them. And what they really do is they give managers or the people that, you know, have created the ETFs and managers, they charge more for for those, right? So they're making more money and just slapping an ESG tag on that. But I, I could go on forever, but, but this is about you. So um, <laughs> I was going to ask. So, you know, fortunately, we are seeing kind of a backlash from a number of states. Right. Right. Particularly natural resource heavy states, fossil fuels, et cetera. I mean, do you think this has legs as a movement? So I think it's a really good first step. And obviously, we've seen states come at it from different um, you know, points, some, some from an antitrust perspective, um, some from, you know, other perspectives that it just doesn't make sense, you know, for the, you know, it, it, that it's skirting fiduciary duties and things like that. So there's sort of different angles. The challenge is, because ESG at its highest levels um, has been, gone through so many iterations and is so entrenched and has so many powerful entities involved, you know, from um, the World Economic Forum to the UN to, you know, the biggest uh, companies in the United States uh, and the biggest asset managers, that what's what I'm already seeing happen, and you may have been seeing some of this too, is that... I think we're going to see ESG repackaged as something else. We're seeing a lot of um, you know, changes in language, things around sustainable and impact. And so it's possible, you know, kind of like the, the whack-a-mole where you, you, you hit ESG and you maybe get that under control and that it sprouts up as something else. Um, Barron's estimated there was an article <clears throat> that there's like 40 trillion dollars in assets tied to ESG and so there's a lot of money and profiteering to be made there are a lot of advisors and people who are creating jobs around this and you know when that the profiteering is so strong and there's so much of a cash grab it does become obviously more difficult because 
you know, pe- people want to make that cash for being the, the ESG expert. Um, although in talking to many of them, they don't exactly know where it came from or exactly what it means. And so I think, I think it's a challenging fight to, to have, but I do think it's worthwhile. And, um, you know, it, it's encouraging to see so many folks at state levels getting involved. And I think that, you know, that's, it, it gives us a good front to keep trying to chip away at it. Yeah, I think one of the more promising things was what, back in December when Vanguard quit the net zero yes. climate banking effort. And so citing, they said, you know, they needed independence from that. And so, yes. um, you know, hopefully we will see more of that. Um, but also I wanted to go, so we talked about a lot about the financial end of ESG. Um, but, you know, there's what's actually happening in countries today, like what's actually happening to people and farmers today. So kind of wanted just to touch on that for like people that are unaware what's happening in the Netherlands, for example. I think this yeah. is an incredibly important dis- discussion. Can you talk a little bit about this and how the Netherlands is becoming entrenched in reshaping the food supply? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's nutty. And again, you know, like when you start seeing the same names pop up over and over again, like a few times it starts to, you know, you go like, well, maybe it's a coincidence. Um, but past that, then it like becomes a trend and you're like, OK, there, there's some reason why these names keep popping up over and over again. And that that's one of the reasons why there's so many of us who are down on the World Economic Forum, because they do keep popping up in all of these areas. So anytime you see words like reshape and reimagine and transform around things that like really don't need to be reshaped, reimagined, transformed, um, usually the, the, w, the WEF, the World Economic Forum, seems to be somewhere uh, around there. So we've seen um, a number of countries you know, go through these issues about, hey, we're trying to, to be better ESG countries. We want to have better environmental scores. Um, devastated Sri Lanka. But Netherlands is, is one where um, they're trying to cut down on, on the um, farming of animals in particular. And there's been a, a ton of pushback from the farmers and, and just ongoing protests. And I, I give um, those, form, those farmers, you know, all of my support and appreciation. But the current prime minister, Mark Rutte uh, of the Netherlands, is very entrenched with the WEF. And they are part of something called the Food Action Alliance, which, again, is trying to reshape and rethink the way that we do everything around food from growing it to consuming it, which, again, generally, I'd say in most places seems to be working really, really well, except for when you know the WEF and some of these other ESG pushers get involved, like what happened in Sri Lanka. Uh, so they're having sort of a long-term fight there. But again, it's not, it's, it, it's not that these things are just like randomly popping up or it's just, you know, um, you know, some, some young environmentalist that's kind of pushing this. This is a very highly coordinated, intentional effort. And I do think that the food supply is something that we really need to be keeping an eye on because it keeps popping up. Um, you know, even here in the United States, you have a lot of individuals 
who are you know buying up more useful and productive land, including farmland. I think it's something like a hundred people own two percent of the land already in the United States, and it just you know that consolidation keeps happening. Um, something that's been happening for a long time, but continues under the Biden administration. I know you've tweeted about this before, Tracy, is that they're taking farmland here in the U.S. Um, out of, uh, you know, out of productive use to use for conservation. So leaving less and less farmland available and more of the farms are getting consolidated. And then um, one of my favorite uh, little stories from the book is about um, how this entity was buying up all these vineyards in California for water rights and amassing what was estimated to be around $300 million worth. And everyone was like, well, you know, who, who is this entity? Like, why, why are they paying these prices? And it turned out to be Harvard University's endowment. And you know, I always refer to Harvard as a, a hedge fund um, with the university attached to it or disguised as a university. And so, you know, again, the wealthy, the well-connected, um, they are being involved in everything. And now, you know, with through ESG um, and also some of the direct purchases, it's also impacting food and, and land and water. So some, something else that we need to, just one other thing for us to, to keep an eye on. Which you just teed up for my next section. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, and that, I, just want, I just want to keep an eye on the time here. I know. I, I'm trying to rush through this. I have okay, a couple more questions. That's it. I swear. I know. All right. So basically we've seen big corporates. I'm going to, I'm going to tie, I'm going to tie resources and housing all in one, I guess, in, in this question to get through this quickly. <laughs> but So we're seeing all these people buy up land and water rights, right? And we've seen a lot of corporates enter the single family home market, the obvious one being BlackRock. So how big of this is a problem? And, you know, how is housing under you know, is this causing housing under fire for the American dream? I mean, we're having BlackRock buy up everything. Yeah. So <laughs> I think this is probably, again, one of the, the shocking things that has come about. And I, what's important for people to understand is that this has been completely driven by Fed and government policy um, over the last 15 years. Because if you go back about 12 years, there was no meaningful institutional capital in the single family home market. And it's relevant because for most families, the house is the largest by dollar value um, store of wealth that most families have. So this is a critical way that people build wealth and you know, preserve their legacies is through owning their own home. Certainly we know that it, it is the literal physical symbol of the American dream. And I think that's because of the, the wealth creation that it enables. So you know, when we then, you know, after the Great Recession financial crisis, entered this period of easy money with very low interest rates, um, and, you know, all of this money printing and, you know, all these corporations and, and investors had access to money and the asset values were starting to get inflated. They started looking 
um, for yields in any place that they could find it because the traditional areas were getting more and more expensive. And as I said, before that point in time, you didn't have any institutional investors in the single family home market. By the fourth quarter of 2021, something like 18% of all single family homes purchased were purchased by institutional investors. And they were not purchased to fix them up and then flip them. They were purchased for the intent purpose to rent that back to you. So again, we see another entity who wants to take your wealth creation opportunity from you. And in this particular case, quite literally rent you back the American dream. And Again, without the the easy money policy and the shifting of um, fortunes from Main Street to Wall Street, this doesn't come about. And it's it's sort of a brand new thing, but it really does have severe implications um, in terms of the wealth creation opportunities. And we're seeing that, you know, obviously with millennials in particular, it's one of several pieces that I discuss Uh, around, you know, why millennials surprisingly on an inflation adjusted basis actually make more money, you know, by, I think it's age 40 than Gen X or the boomers before them, but they have so much less wealth, including ownership of housing and having these competitors in the market who are well capitalized, who can make cash offers, who, you know, don't even look at these houses sometime take them out of, you know, what is already in undersupply um, is just, you know, one more piece of this you will own nothing puzzle. And then one last question, because I know you're strapped on time. I just want to end this kind of on a positive note. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So how, how can the average American fight back to reclaim that American dream? And what are some of the financial habits that people can change to, uh, to, to, to reclaim this dream? Yeah, so we tor- sort of touched on this before, but I, I do want to say that this book is is not meant to be a downer. It's really meant to empower you with the knowledge so that you know where all these different issues are coming from. And so you can create that plan to fight back, which I think is really important. And you know, obviously it depends on the person um, in where they are in their financial journey about how they're going to shift their behaviors and, and fight back. But particularly from a financial side, um, you know, it's about being more intentional and probably more austere with your actual spending and then doing more to shift that diversification into hard assets that we're talking about. Because the, the plan from them is that you will own nothing, but they're not following that plan. And if you talk to people who are wealthy and you look at the things that wealthy people are doing, uh, it, 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 it foots with them. We talked about them buying more productive land and, and accumulating more of that. We've seen central banks around the world loading up on precious metals. Um, those are signals for you. They, they may be telling you one thing, but they're doing something else. And so if that's what they think is going to create that, that wealth creation in a new financial world order, like you need to be mimicking that to whatever level you can. And certainly I understand that, you know, some people with inflation are just finding it hard to get by. Um, so, you know, the, the, the behaviors that you make are going to be a little bit different and, and small changes, but 
you know, starting today and, and working that up over time is going to give you more leverage and more opportunities. Thank you so much, Carol. I really appreciate your time today. Um, everybody follow Carol. She's fantastic. She has some really fun tweets as well as some really serious <laughs> tweets. <laughs> but I really do. I want to say thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening, everybody who joined in. Thank you, Carol, for your time today. Please get her book. comes out July 18th this summer. Uh, I think you can pre-order it already on Amazon. Yes. And um, again, that, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> I, want to th I want to thank you, Tracy. Um, obviously, I'm a huge fan of yours. One of the, the smartest people I know. Uh, I love the fact that we're friends. Thank you for hosting this. And yes, I'm going to implore everyone to get their hard copy of the book because we got to get in the habit of actually owning things. <laughs> so yes, I actually totally. I always buy hard copies because I'm worried that a digital copy, they're going to change it. Right, and, and I, we're I already seeing. They're already seeing. We're, we, we've already seen the. They already are starting to change hard copies too. So get your hard copy. Exactly, <laughs> and thank you, and thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, obviously, much more to, to come on this topic. But um, you know, let's fight back together. Thank you.